0: You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is the Graduates, the Interview Talk Show, where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by biologist Ashley Smiley from the Department of Integrated Biology, uh, and she's here to talk about her work on biomechanics. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Of course. Uh, so you work on the biomechanics of bird flight.
1: Yes. So I am in the animal flight laboratory in the Department of Integrative Biology, like you just said. And specifically, I study the family of hummingbirds. They're called Trochilidae.
0: Trochilidae. Okay. So hummingbirds. And uh, these are just like the ones we see in the backyard, maybe. Uh, what's the, What are the ones here? Anna's hummingbird.
1: Yes. So Anna's are the most common. You can see them you know, every day on campus. You can see them in your backyard. There's been a lot of studies on Anna's hummingbirds in my lab, though I actually study tropical hummingbirds. So I'm interested in Colombian hummingbirds and how their
0: biomechanics, how that changes across species. And how many hummingbirds are there, maybe like relative to other types of birds? Are there like tons of different species or just, you know, good representation? They they are not the most
1: diverse family of birds, but they are extremely diverse. There are currently about 353 species, according to the most recent IOC bird checklist. And what makes them really interesting to work with is that they are considered a rapid radiation. So essentially, that just means that they've diversified relatively quickly with respect to... How long they've been around. So,
0: can you put some numbers on that for us?
1: Yeah. So, in the grand scheme of bird evolution, they're a relatively young taxonomic group. Their most recent common ancestor is present in the fossil record around 22 million years ago. So, the transitional fossil form where we link avian dinosaurs to modern birds. Occurs at about 150 million years ago. So they're not that old. However, they've diversified into nine principal clades that, like I said, has 353 species. But if you look at that in comparison to other bird families, um, a useful but sort of rough comparison is pigeons. So pigeons the columbidae family they have their most recent common ancestor around 55 to 66 million years ago so they are roughly three times as old as hummingbirds but they have a very similar amount of species they have about 342 so in a third of the time they've diversified a lot more quickly than
0: the other bird family columbidae okay I have some questions. So maybe people don't think about birds when they think about fossils, but it is so birds can be fossilized. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they have bones in there. They do have bones. <laughs> <laughs> I heard the bones are very light, though. Is that is that true? Yeah,
1: they um they're actually hollow. And because birds are so diverse, we you, you can't always say that, you know, all birds have hollow bones. We we can see instances where some birds have solidified parts of their bones. For instance, in mannequins, they have a way to solidify some of their wing bones so that when they flap them very rapidly, they can actually make high-frequency sounds.
0: What's a mannequin? I um, mean, what's a bird mannequin?
1: <laughs> a bird <laughs> mannequin, it's a, it's a common name for a family of birds in the tropics, and they're very colorful. They have really famous display patterns that you can probably find on Nat Geo.
0: Very charismatic as well. Cool. And what what about the hummingbirds? They live all over the world. Uh, You said you study tropical ones, but are they in Europe and... And yeah asia
1: so they're restricted to the western hemisphere they occur anywhere from southeast alaska to the tip of the chilean country so pretty large span and there have been fossil forms that have been linked to early humming hummingbird forms in eurasia but um, most scientists or scientists say that they've radiated out of the tropics so
0: so we should we should appreciate them then, because other people in other parts of the world don 't don 't get to see hummingbirds in their backyard, yeah, yeah, very absolutely. cool, uh, so have you always been a bird person? Is that like your your favorite animal forever? Is that how you chose birds
1: <laughs> i guess i 've I got my start in research studying house wrens, peruvian birds, um, House wrens are actually in North America as well, but the subspecies that I was interested were Peruvian. So, yeah, to answer your question, I've I've always studied birds, but now that I'm kind of shifting into this biomechanics realm, I'm more interested in functional morphology. So in the future, I would be really interested to start studying bats or, you know, other flying animals that
0: may not be birds. Uh, And can you tell us about some of your earlier research before you got to Berkeley? Because it looked like, yeah, you you spent time in Peru, Mm -hmm. spent time in uh, anywhere else. In Chile. In Chile. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. So when I was studying
1: house wrens, I was in a lab at the University of New Mexico. And everybody in that lab studies birds. And it was kind of nice because we would go on a lot of collection exhibitions to Peru. So we all had our own projects that we could mutualistically benefit by collecting birds and taking all of the parts of it that we need for our projects at the same time. So we would spend two months during the summers just netting and collecting tissue samples, study skins. Some people did projects on parasites. So we would all go out, get all the things we need, and then come back and analyze that data within the university. So I was studying cardiac morphology along an elevational gradient. And it's a really interesting question because these birds live anywhere from sea level to over 4,000 meters in elevation. So you could imagine that the low partial pressures of oxygen would cause some, some consequences in perhaps their flight, but I was more looking at their physiology and how they're able to function at high altitude and pump blood that is more viscous than, than uh, blood in birds that are living at sea level.
0: And cool. And you, and you did that with mist nets? Or what, what's a mist net?
1: A mist net is this nylon net kind of like a hairnet that you would wear in a restaurant, but more fine and somehow more expensive. (laughs) So we would capture these birds that would fly into these nets and take them back to our research station, which was actually a REI tent. But (laughs) yeah, so it's mist nets are only effective for birds that fly at the level that they're set up. So they weren't effective for canopy birds or sometimes even hummingbirds because hummingbirds can... Fly backwards. So if they can see the net, they'll pause and either fly around it or just back up and fly in the opposite direction. Oh, tricky. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: well, I saw on uh, on your CV that you've you mentioned wrens, but you've also worked with woodpeckers, right?
1: Yes. So I studied an endemic population of Magellanic woodpeckers in southern Chile. So. They require old-growth forests to make their cavity nests in, and it takes a really long time for them to raise their young, so they're particularly sensitive to changes in their forest space. And in that part of the world, a lot of logging is starting to impact the availability of those you nothophagous know, forests. And so with logging, we were seeing a reduction in in the size of that population. So... What we would do is we would actually track these birds, capture them using mist nets, and attach GPS and VHF transmitters to them and figure out how that space that they partitioned was shrinking and what was happening in terms of competition between different families and how um, we could extrapolate it into the future and potentially use that information to inform Logging companies about the damage that they're doing, and perhaps explore alternatives for um, utilizing those resources.
0: Okay, uh, but hummingbirds seem to be you said all these different birds, but hummingbirds are your preferred bird, right
1: now? Yeah, yeah right now. And do you,
0: why? What what's so glamorous about hummingbirds besides their ridiculous coloration, which is beautiful? <laughs> Um they're just they're kind
1: of out of this world in a lot of ways, so i study I study how changes in size affects their acceleration and velocity maxima, which we can use to inform how they've radiated through their space. But there's other projects in my lab about hummingbirds that are equally as interesting. like one of the postdocs is studying how they move liquid through their bills and what's happening in the tongue, and how their bill is actually changing shape as they're drinking. So it's insane to think about that. It's this oscillating, asynchronous movement that results in like, you know, nutrition consumption. But when you're watching it, you can't really see it with the naked eye. You have to zoom in, film it, slow it down, and track those points through space and time. And when you see it on a plot, it's just this like psychedelic wave of movement, and yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of magical. but what I'm interested in is the diversity of hummingbirds. So they change in size anywhere between one and a half grams to over twenty grams. So as they grow developmentally and across species, they have disproportional changes in length in their wings and their tails, and that's something that has never been explored in terms of characterizing their comparative biomechanics. So I'm really interested in characterizing acceleration and velocity. How quickly are their wings moving? That depends on the species. So... It's hard to make broad statements about their movement as a family because there are so many species. It's hard to come up with a ballpark. Too, no, no, that's it's
0: okay. It's okay. Cause it, but it seems faster than my eye can detect. Right. Yeah. yeah very absolutely. fast. Yeah. And I have heard those, like, you know, anecdotes about how many beats per minute their heart is going to maintain that velocity. Uh, so they're definitely doing something crazy in terms of how much they're moving. Right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what brought you to Berkeley in particular? Yeah. So
1: when I was finishing up my project about house wrens and I was thinking about high altitude more, that's when I became interested in biomechanics because how the environment in tropical forests impacts these bird species is really interesting to me. So it's kind of that interesting intersection between abiotic and biotic factors in biomechanics so there are actually not very many biomechanics labs in the United States so I was first interested in Berkeley because as an undergraduate I did a research summer experience in uh, here at Cal Berkeley with my current advisor Robert Dudley and we did this side project about electrostatics in hummingbirds in terms of how they use this supposed sense to tell whether or not a flower has been visited. So we did this project. We got a kind of a short, neat publication out of it, and I decided I wanted to come back. And we have a lot of great tools and resources here. We have our animal flight lab. We have two wind tunnels and a lot of machine machinery that I would eventually like to use if I can ever get myself out of the field. And doing a project here on campus.
0: Yeah. So I guess I should have asked this earlier, but what is biomechanics?
1: So this is a question that I'm often asked, and I like to think of it as this open relationship between biology, physics, and engineering, and open because we as biomechanicians can sort of borrow principles in physics to make predictions about animal and plant locomotion. And in turn, we can use that information to inform engineering design, if that's what, you know, we're interested in. So a lot of my predictions about how I think animals are going to move in my field system, they have physics underpinnings.
0: And you, you mentioned some really cool sounding equipment. So uh, a flight lab and two wind tunnels. What, uh, so is a wind tunnel, that's like what we saw in the movies where they just like blast air and you can like fly through the... Was, tell us more about this wind tunnel.
1: <laughs> um, it's just a way to replicate both laminar and potentially turbulent flow. So the idea is you can put a flying animal or object inside of this tunnel and film it and you can you know turn up the wind speed you can turn it down and figure out if there's a point of failure there's a point at which the animal can no longer fly depends on your question or perhaps you could characterize the vortices that are shed from the wings as it flaps in certain ways you can change like the angle of attack for the airfoils it's Entirely dependent on your research, but there's a lot of potential and it's just kind of this easy way to characterize kinematics.
0: But I can't fit in it or can I can I come mm, visit it? No,
1: I don't oh. we don't have a big enough window. <laughs> okay, okay. A human. Uh,
0: well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on CalEx, My name is Tesla, and today I'm joined by biomechanician Ashley Smiley from the Department of Integrated Biology telling us about her work on the biomechanics of flight in birds and her previous work uh, in, in South America looking at wrens and woodpeckers. Uh, what about in your work? You said you spend most of the time in the field uh, yes. now. So what sort of equipment do you use out in the field? No wind tunnels out there?
1: Um, no. So unfortunately, we don't have access to a wind tunnel at our field site. So my field site is about 60 kilometers south of Bogota in Colombia. And because we don't have a wind tunnel and I'm interested in forward flight, I had a friend help me pick up a bunch of 2x4s from Home Depot. And I, before I left, I built a model of this tunnel that... Is just, it just has a frame made of two by fours. So the idea is that I could have a bird fly through it, and if I set up cameras around it, I could compare maximal velocity as well as acceleration amongst the species that I record. And if you take that same horizontal tunnel, you can even rotate it 90 degrees and look at vertical flight as well. So a lot of my time is spent capturing hummingbirds and essentially releasing them through this space. And I'm also interested in, like I said before, acceleration, but that you know, that encompasses both linear and rotational acceleration. So that requires having a bird start at rest, um, hovering at rest. And so we take an object to scare it and have it move in the opposite direction with a high-speed camera. So if we track points on its body, we can characterize that and compare.
0: So can you walk us through a day in, uh, at your field site? So you're in beautiful Columbia. Uh, like how many hummingbirds do you end up catching in a day? How many different species are in that one area?
1: So at the field station that I work at, you can see up to 22 species. And the entire second floor of the field station is lined with hummingbird feeders. So you can just walk along the balcony and see those see those birds who have become so accustomed to humans around that they don't even fly away. They'll fly right by your face. So it does make it easier to catch them because we have this um, magnetic trap that we borrowed from Cl- Chris Clark. And if you stand a distance away and you hold up the... It's kind of like a cartoon, you know, like you have a box and a stick and then an animal goes inside and then you like kick the stick out, except we use magnets instead. And so birds fly into a feeder and as soon as you find the species that you want to record or a certain number of them, you just, you know, click it shut and then you uh, pick them up. So mm-hmm. that's usually all throughout the day I'm doing that. I get up early, I start catching the birds. We sometimes have to refill the feeders because turns out we go through about 40 liters of nectar a day and this past summer I was able to film on average 25 to 30 birds per day and that's with taking you know lunch.
0: Wow and how do you tell the different hummingbird species apart? Is it like the length of the tail or you mentioned body size at one point? Mm
1: -hmm. So in general it's a little bit more difficult if you're in an unfamiliar place and there are certain field marks that you can guide yourself with um, but in, at my field site we are so used to the same species that it's it's very obvious which is a mango or which is you know the endemic species the indigo capped bird
0: Name. Yeah, well, scientific names are easier <laughs> sometimes. But.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're 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 a genus of Amazilia cyanophrons, so that's their scientific name. I'm I'm most often comfortable with
0: scientific names over common names, just yeah. because that's what they go by in the literature. That's it's funny because I feel the same way, but there was definitely a point when that was not true, and then I yeah. got into the PhD program, and, and then at some point it switched, and now I'm like, wait, what's the common name of that monkey? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um cool well uh is there anything else about your uh dissertation work to date that we haven't touched on besides how cool it is (laughs) how many hummingbirds you get to hang out with in columbia
1: no i mean the general idea is there it's it's uh I could go into more detail about the specific morphometrics and how that changes, but it's I don't know it can get pretty dense. The general idea is that we can we hope to be able to take a bird and based on its, you know, morphometrics like I said, like its wing parameters, its body size, its bill length and make predictions about how fast that bird can rotate. And ostensibly in the future if somebody wanted, they could You know, use bio-inspired design and improve current aircraft and, you know, say that this research has been done so we know that larger objects can accelerate faster or that smaller objects are more maneuverable in space.
0: So okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. So bio inspired design that that must be um, a big part of the applicability of biomechanics research because I've seen like those the classic example of the gecko yeah. feet, and then they yeah, turn that's that into like very popular adhesive. <laughs> you're trying you're going for the birds though, <laughs> no geckos. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, What what about, do you have any advice for uh, people in the Berkeley area who are now interested in seeing more hummingbirds or learning about hummingbirds? Uh, It sounds like it might be easy to see them, you know, in your own neighborhood. So what advice do you have for them?
1: Well, I would say get a hummingbird feeder. I mean, that's the quickest way to see a lot of hummingbirds. And for the first week or so, it'll probably take them a while to find it, but they will find it. They always do. And really you know, pro piece of advice that I would give about feeders is um, to put some Vaseline on the string holding it up because there's a lot of ants in Berkeley that will take over your feeder and then all of a sudden you have an insane ant problem. But yeah, feeder is the way to go, I think. Yeah,
0: that is an excellent pro tip. Uh, what about advice for students who are interested in learning more about biomechanics or yeah, do you have advice for students who don't quite know what they want to do or are thinking about research?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would say for, specifically for Berkeley, undergraduates here can sign up for opportunities in research. You know, there's the URAP program. They can They can actually browse different projects that PhD students are working on and apply for a position that, you know, could last anywhere from a semester to the whole time they're here. So I have a Urap student and um, she's she's actually a bioengineer student and she has not classically worked with wild animals so it's kind of a cool experience coming from her engineering background and incorporating evolutionary biology. So there's there's always something for students out there if they want to, you know, get involved with biomechanics, especially in my lab. I mean, we have people studying mosquitoes, geckos as well, other types of birds, just there's just so many questions.
0: Okay. Yeah, and do you have any advice from your own uh background? You mentioned you did like a summer research opportunity. So is that was that for you one of the most influential things getting you into research?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think I think getting that experience was really crucial in strengthening my CV and my application. But what inspired me personally was field work, being outside and being able to make observations that inspired a lot of my questions today. And if you are like me, I I can't be in the office all year. Like I want to be outside. So if possible, my advice would be to try to apply to a to a field research position, because when you're out there, you kind of have to use the resources that you have around you to be successful. And when you're in a foreign place, that's very challenging. But it'll make you a better researcher at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't ask, but um, what what's it like working in a foreign country? Were there any differences between the countries, or is it um, fairly easy? Uh, you said you're taking Spanish, so I'm trying to get the language <laughs> under your belt.
1: Yeah. Well there's so many challenges. But in in terms of language, yeah, I think the difference between Peruvian Spanish and Chilean Spanish is incredible. You know, Chile has a very interesting history about how it came to have those like intense accents. But aside from that, I think it was challenging expressing myself um, scientifically and personally in another language and living with Foreigners from all over the world. I mean, it was at the end of the day, ended up being a really good experience for me. But initially, especially with cultural differences, you know, as a woman of color going to a new place, and they have this idea of you as an American. But you know, most a lot of people tend to forget that the United States is very diverse. So they make assumptions about you before you get there, and just working through a lot of that is was particularly challenging.
0: Yeah. And it also makes me think how uh, it might it must be challenging for scientists in other countries, too, because we've kind of standardized English as a language of presentation of science. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting to think about that. Yeah. Uh, Well, as we get to the end of the program, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to say anything about science you want to say or not about science. Uh, This is the quote-unquote, soapbox segment. So uh, if you have anything you want to say, now's the time. Get it out there.
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to get political. But.
0: Hey, this is a radio in Berkeley, California. You can do whatever you want that doesn't involve obscenities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although these days obscenities are close to the front of my yeah. tongue.
1: Well, if there's anything that comes straight to my mind about uh, soapbox territory, I guess I would want to emphasize the importance of higher education and valuing graduate research. Um, doing a PhD is is not easy, and one of my friends recently was expressing to me how noble of an act it is, because what you're studying may not even benefit you right now. You personally, we're not getting paid a lot, but in the future, it's we're, we're doing research that's going to eventually benefit humanity. So I would Encourage people to call the representatives to to think about how you know the recent House bill about taxing graduate students for income that they don't actually make, um, how that's going to impact the scientific progress of you know our country and future science. So, call your representatives.
0: Yeah, that that tax plan has been going around quite a bit. And um, my understanding, but for people who aren't as familiar, is that, as Ashley said, they want to um, tax our tuition waivers, which is just a way on paper for the University of California to say uh, you don't have to pay tuition because you're a graduate student. Uh, But then taxing that uh, more than doubles people's taxes. And for students who go to private universities where... This tuition is much higher. You're talking about uh, taxing, you know, $30,000 a year of of, you know, invisible income and then having to pay those taxes. So, um, yeah, definitely get out there. Call your representatives. Uh, You know, science, we like to think that it's not political, but it becomes more and more clear every day that this is a debate we're still having, uh, that science may in fact be very political and we just can't disassociate it from politics or from history. Uh, So important things to think about and to talk about. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, for coming on the show today. And uh, I know we'll be hearing more of you of the future as you transition into uh, one of the graduates, uh, hosts and producers. So welcome (laughs) to the team, I know, right? Yeah, I'm Uh, excited. Yeah, it's gonna be great. And thanks for being here today. Uh, You're listening to The Graduates on KLX Berkeley or you listen to it. Uh, My name's Tesla Munson and today I was joined by biologist Ashley Smiley from the Department of Integrated Biology. She's talking about her work on the biomechanics of flight and birds and looking at acceleration and body size and heading out into the tropics to uh, hang out with a bunch of hummingbirds more than 20 species in one day. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, I've yeah. got one. I know they're territorial. So I've got one in my garden space and I've named him. And uh, when other hummingbirds try and come in, he attacks them. It's pretty cool. But they can be kind of scary. I'm always glad I'm wearing my sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> they, they move fast. Uh, nice. But thank you again. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Graduates here on KALX Berkeley.